This podcast is brought to you by Northern Trust Wealth Management. What is the why that drives today's most successful business leaders? Tune in each month to the Road to Why podcast by the Northern Trust Institute, where host Eric Shapea dives deeper with entrepreneurs on their life's work, legacy, and the greater meaning of it all. Find the Road to Why where you listen to your favorite podcasts. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Three more states prepare to join the parade of income tax cutters as the New York City Transit Union blocks a plan to rearrange subway schedules for post-COVID traffic patterns. Welcome, I'm Kyle Peterson with the Wall Street Journal. We are joined today by my colleague on the editorial board, Manet Ukwe-Barua. Welcome to you, Manet. The remarkable run for state tax cutters over the past few years is only getting more remarkable, it seems. And let's start with West Virginia, where the state has recently passed a tax cut plan that doesn't go quite as far as the original proposed by Governor Jim Justice, but still seems a step forward for the state's business climate and certainly personal pocketbooks. And so, Manet, give us a sense of what the governor proposed there and what the state legislature ultimately has enacted. Yes. So the final version, which has come out of a compromise, which I'll get to in a bit, is going to reduce the top rate on income taxes from 6.5% today to 5.12%. So about a 20% reduction. And that goes quite a long way because if you look at the states in West Virginia's neighborhood, all of them are well below 6%, or rather, I believe Virginia is, is close to that at 5.75. But some of the other bordering states, Maryland, etc., have lower rates than West Virginia. And so this is about competing, about making sure that the playing field stays competitive for West Virginia's business climate. Jim Justice, as you mentioned, the governor of West Virginia had originally wanted to go a bit further. The plan that he proposed and which was passed by the state house would have cut the rate in half to 3.25%. And yet there was some resistance to that in the state Senate. Both the Senate president and the leader of the finance committee believed that it was too drastic of a cut, that it would lead to revenue shortfalls in coming years. And so they passed their own plan, which had an even smaller cut than what was eventually agreed to in the compromise. But basically, I think that West Virginia residents should still be pleased that their state has joined, as you said, the growing club of states that are reducing their rates. And there definitely is a possibility that there will be subsequent moves to further reduce that rate in the future. The other political angle that I think is interesting here specifically in West Virginia is remember that 2024 is a Senate election, and one of the guys who may be on the ballot is Democratic Senator Joe Manchin. And one of the names, one of the Republicans that has been floated as a potential challenger to Joe Manchin is one Governor Jim Justice. Last month, there was a poll by the Terrence Group commissioned by the Senate Leadership Fund. That's a Republican super PAC aligned with Senate Leader Mitch McConnell. And it says that there are three hypothetical matchups they tested between Manchin and potential Republican challengers. Justice was the only GOP challenger listed who won more support than Manchin among likely registered voters. And so, Manet, as I think Jim Justice has said, he is potentially interested in taking on Manchin and running for that Senate seat. And it seems to me this will be a feather in his cap, not only that he got some tax reform done and lowered rates for people in his state, but also he can say, and listen, I wanted to go further. I wanted to go 
further than the legislature ultimately went. And so he's, you know, showing his hand, showing where his ideological convictions on this matter of taxing and spending really lie. Yeah, I think that there's probably a lot of truth to that. Jim Justice, accomplished businessman, similar to Joe Manchin, certainly understands the value of having a competitive tax climate for its own sake. And I definitely believe that he sees the direction that the mining industry is going in his state and wants to put the state on in a position to diversify its industries, bring in more types of business, and not be entirely dependent on mining and the severance taxes which have funded government so far. So that's just the case for the tax cuts on the merits. But the political appeal is important both in a simple way and that kind of the move will be very popular among West Virginia residents. He had tried in previous years to get a tax cut but wasn't able to get by in front of the legislature. And so having that accomplishment to potentially run on if he decides to challenge Joe Manchin will be a huge benefit. But specifically, the issue of taxes and spending is something that he would be able to directly challenge Manchin on. Those polls, I'm not surprised to see that in some of these theoretical polls, Joe Manchin does have a big lead on some hypothetical Republican challengers because he's built a pretty impressive brand in West Virginia. And people know him as someone who is willing to defend the oil and gas industries, who generally has the interests of West Virginians at heart and is willing to fight his own party in certain cases in Congress. But one of the areas where he's been very reluctant to fight his own party is on taxes and spending. Generally, he doesn't have a hard time signing off on large increases, particularly in personal taxation, um, but also corporate taxes in some cases. And he's gotten well behind things like the Inflation Reduction Act in the end that added trillions of dollars worth of spending to the federal deficit. And so Jim Justice wants to think, hey, what are the issues that I can actually draw a meaningful contrast with Joe Manchin on? And saying that he is a champion of low taxation is something that's going to appeal to an overwhelmingly Republican state and show that he would be a better advocate for that cause in Congress than Joe Manchin has been. Let's move to a second state that might be moving to cut income taxes as well. That's North Dakota. Right now, there are five income tax brackets in North Dakota, starting at 1.1% and going to 2.9%. But recently, there were three bills that passed the state house. A couple of them are competing, and then a third is an addition. The competing ones, one would assign a flat tax of 1.99%, so just under 2%. A second would be a flat tax of 1.5%. And then a third would lower the income tax rate by a half a percentage point every couple of years as long as the state kept hitting its revenue projections. Let's listen to a clip of Republican Governor Doug Burgum. This is from a legislative hearing a couple months ago. He's endorsing the 1.5% flat tax plan. This would put us on a path towards eventually zeroing out our individual income tax and joining the eight states that don't have individual income tax. The list of states that don't have individual income tax will continue to grow in this competitive workforce environment we're in. But <clears throat> it's important, it's not just any eight states. It's eight states that we compete with directly. Uh, we compete for energy workers. Alaska, Texas, and Wyoming are three of those eight states that already have zero income tax. And of course, our neighbor right next to us in South Dakota has zero income tax. And, and of course, uh, th this is a 
uh, important uh, because we, if we get more workers here driving our industries forward, that's what drives, keeps driving the record revenue that's coming into our state. One thing I should also mention about this 1.5% flat tax is it would exempt any income for singles up to about $45,000 and for couples up to about $75,000. So something like you know 60% of taxpayers would owe nothing straight off the bat. And then for the rest of them, it could potentially step down to zero. But one thing, Manet, that I thought was interesting about what Governor Burgum said there was he clearly sees this as a competition. And part of that is something you mentioned earlier, states in the neighborhood. South Dakota is one of those states with no income tax. And so there may be people who are deciding down there which side of the border that they want to live on. And some of them may pick that they want to live in South Dakota because they don't get taxed in South Dakota on the income that they make. But he also recognizes that this is a broader competition. The workforce in the United States is incredibly mobile, especially in industries like one that has been huge in North Dakota, which is the oil business. North Dakota needs those oil workers to want to come work in North Dakota instead of Alaska or Texas or Wyoming. So this is really a nationwide tax competition that these states are in. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think over the past 15 or so years that we've really seen the shale boom, there has been a massive workforce of Americans who do travel across state lines and also migrant workers, sometimes permanent migrants coming to the United States, and they have an opportunity to go work in the oil and gas industry in a huge variety of places. And for those workers, those difference in the tax rate could add up to a pretty significant percentage of what they're able to take home. And so in the aggregate, you will see that affect the decisions that these workers make. And it's to the benefit of North Dakota's oil and gas industry that they're able to lower the cost against the take-home pay of workers who are seeking to enter that industry. But yeah, the tax competition really is one of the main factors driving not just the zero tax states that Doug Berger mentioned, but several other states that have reduced their tax rates within the past few years to do so. And there's been an increasing rate of interstate migration among Americans over the past years, and the cost of living is one of the biggest features there. And so he has a lot of recent evidence to point to in making the decision to pursue the flat tax at a lower rate. A third state where residents might get an income tax here shortly is Michigan. And Manet, can you give us a sense of what is going on there and where the rights might go? Yeah, so listeners might be a bit surprised to hear that Michigan is among the states looking to reduce its tax rates because it has a Democratic governor and slim Democratic majorities in both chambers of its legislature. The reason why a tax cut is now proceeding is because it happened automatically because of a statutory provision. So it's not a new cut being passed directly by the legislature. Rather, they have a bill or a law from 2015 which mandates that the rate will reduce automatically when the general fund grows faster than inflation plus a certain benchmark. And so the first year that law was active was actually 2023. And Michigan, like a lot of states, has seen pretty big growth in its general fund because of pandemic aid, because of certain increases during the economic rebound over the past couple of years. And so they have a surplus of about $9 billion last year, and that led to an automatic decrease in the income tax rate. Governor Gretchen Whitmer 
preferred not to see this new lowered rate come to pass. And so she tried to work with Democrats in this legislature to find ways to actually reduce the general fund in a way that would keep their tax rate at a flat 4.5%. The first thing they tried was to funnel some spending towards essentially a slush fund, which is called SOAR, that they used to offer tax incentives to corporations, but Governor Whitmer wasn't able to get support for that. The next thing they tried was cash rebates, basically giving one-time payments of $180 to all residents, or rather all taxpayers, and they weren't able to get enough support to pass that with the backdating that they would need to change the standing of the state's general fund. And so in the end, the governor threw up her hands and, and agreed to let the income tax reduction move forward. But it just shows you how different the thinking is among Democrats and Republicans, how we've had so many states pursuing rate cuts and pursuing flat taxes within the past couple of years. And then Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, even when she was handed the opportunity to do so by the statutory provision, basically trying everything in her power to see if she could stop it. Hang tight. We'll be right back. You're listening to Potomac Watch from The Wall Street Journal. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker. Play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the Opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. Let's zoom out a little bit. The Journal's editorial on the West Virginia tax cut says that it's the 22nd state to cut tax rates on income since 2021. And so if North Dakota succeeds, if the North Dakota Senate passes that income tax cut, and there are some other bills percolating in the Senate involving some property tax relief, so it's not clear what compromise the Senate will eventually come to, the legislature in North Dakota will eventually come to. But if they make some income tax changes, I guess that would be the 23rd state. I don't know if we're counting Michigan in this, if that was a pre-existing law, but it is a, a remarkable trend, I think. Almost half of states reducing their income taxes in really a period of two or three years. And Manea, I wonder what you attribute that to. Some of it, it seems to me, is this competition among states, maybe renewed competition as states know that the workforce is more mobile, work from home has really increased amid the pandemic, and there's a real competition for workers coming. Another thought I would throw out is the cap on the federal deduction for state and local taxes that was part of the President Trump and Paul Ryan tax reform, because if there's a cap on that, then states, state capitals raising taxes are not able to tell their voters that they can deduct some of that cost, at least, on the federal return. If they're going to raise a dollar's worth of revenue, they have to inflict a dollar's worth of pain on their taxpayers. It's not subsidized the way that it used to be. And then I guess a third thought is just that the economy has been pretty good zooming out of the pandemic. Tax receipts in a lot of places have been high. They've been bolstered by all of this COVID aid. And so there are some states who look at that and they see an opportunity for spending. And there are others who look at that and see an opportunity for some kind of permanent tax relief and tax cuts 
wants to improve their business climate over time. Manet, I don't know if there are any other thoughts that you would add to that or how you would attribute that breakdown to this remarkable trend that we've been seeing. Yeah, I think that there are a lot of governors and state legislators who are asking themselves the same question, not why it's beneficial to cut tax rates. Obviously, they want to reinvest in their state's economies and keep growth going. But why are they in such a strong financial position to be able to do so? So to answer your question directly, I would say that the real unifying factor behind why a lot of states are cutting their taxes now is because so many of them are in a much stronger fiscal position than they have been in recent years up until now. And I think the biggest reasons for that are one, pandemic aid, the massive amount of pandemic aid over the course of three bills from Congress after March 2020, which subsidized states and helped to shore up some of their pension funds and other operating activities. They were flush with cash from that in a way that really gave them more flexibility to reduce their sort of the annual taxation. But in addition to that, I think that a lot of the states have actually seen their workforces decrease. The number of public employees has actually declined and has not rebounded since COVID. And that has reduced sort of the operating cost of government in a lot of these places. And again, given more flexibility for these governors to say that they're going to cut their tax rates. I do think that the SALT deduction cap also has had some effect, but it is interesting to see that some of the states with the highest rates of taxation, which were hurt the most by salt actually have been the ones that haven't joined the rush of tax cutting. Those are states like California, New York, which have extremely high annual expenses and so find it very difficult to reduce their taxes even when there's a massive popular demand for it. And so I think that all of those factors together are contributing to it and so far it doesn't show any signs of uh, slowing up. Mene, you mentioned the number of public employees and I also wanted to ask you about your recent interview in the newspaper with Philip Howard. He's the author of a new book called Not Accountable, Rethinking the Constitutionality of Public Employee Unions. Uh, he was also recently on a Potomac Watch podcast episode. If listeners want to find your print interview, the headline on it is Public Unions Versus the People. But I bring this up because recently we've got a new story, a great example of, I think, Howard's thesis that union paralysis is part of what is making America's cities ungovernable. I would point to this dispute about schedules with the New York City Transit Union, and I wonder if you could spin that story out for listeners. Absolutely. In December, the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, which is the organization in New York City that manages the subway put together a plan to change the schedules of the subways around the new ridership habits. So, of course, now we're almost three years in to long-time experiment in huge numbers of New Yorkers working from home a lot of the time or working on hybrid schedules. And what that means is that there are many fewer people riding the train on Mondays and Fridays, which are the most common days for work from home. But we have seen a pretty big rebound in ridership on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, and also on the weekends when you have tourists and families coming in to visit the city. So basically, the MTA created a plan to run fewer trains on Mondays and Fridays, more trains on the busier days when people actually need them. And they did this, they believed, within the constraints of what their workers needed, which is to say they weren't running fewer trains altogether, and they weren't reducing workers' hours, and so their updated plan wasn't going to have any impact on workers' actual pay. But the Transit Workers Union still rejected the plan because they said that their 
employees were used to working a certain schedule and that it just would be too much of a hassle for them to adapt. And so the dispute went to a labor arbitrator and just last week that arbitrator decided in favor of the union. So he struck down the MTA's plan, invited them to submit another one, which the MTA hasn't yet done. But as you said, it is incredible illustration of exactly how these unions operate. Their goal often is to prevent any change, basically to exert as much power as they possibly can over their employer. And even subtle common sense changes, which would benefit riders and benefit the city by saving money, they will stand in the way of, despite the fact that it costs them little to nothing. And the result of this, I guess, is more trains running mostly empty on Mondays and Fridays and fewer trains on the weekend when you have rising tourism back and a lot of people trying to get on the subway to get where they're going to a show, you know, downtown, to a museum. And where is Mayor Eric Adams on this story? It seems to me that you could rally the public to make the kinds of consumer-friendly changes that we're talking about here. And I get that many of these democratic cities, the unions are what you need to get elected. You need that organization, you need that support, you need those donations. But in my view, this is akin to a temptation on both sides of the aisle is to see public programs as jobs programs. I mean, the subway exists to provide subway service to people in a way that is most accessible and convenient to the riders. Same thing I would say with the highway programs. You have a highway program and its job, in my view, is to build a highway, a good highway at a low cost. And instead, you have politicians who are putting all sorts of mandates on them, Buy America programs. And I don't understand why the reaction is not to try to build the highway in as cost-effective a way as possible. And then you can lower taxes. And the jobs program wouldn't have to be some political mandate by America program. It would be the fact that we have a robust private economy with low taxes in this state, in this country. So let me give you the last word on this subject, Manet. But what do you make of Philip Howard's idea that there is an unconstitutionality to these public unions, at least the way they're operating in our modern world, and that there could be a lawsuit brought to challenge them? And I suppose maybe the answer depends on whether you're talking about the the federal side of things or the state and local side. Yes, I think that you hit the key distinction right there at the end. For starters, there definitely is an incredible problem with the way that these labor contracts constrain the ability of elected representatives and their staffs to govern, whether it's the subways, whether it's constructing a highway or any other kind of infrastructure. You often see the most common sense, cost-effective plans be shelved because they can't be executed within the constraints of the bargaining agreements and the labor contracts that the government has struck with workers. And so the problem can't be minimized. But the potential solution through the courts is a tricky one. I do think that there's a plausible case that the federal bargaining does violate the president's ability to manage his staff in the way that he chooses. Basically, that the president does not have the ability to contractually divest himself of management power, and the way that these bargaining agreements make it difficult to fire federal employees could theoretically be interpreted by some judges as too big of a divestment of the president's authority over his staff. And so it's possible that you could see courts constrain the ability to strike contracts with these unions. At the state level, I think it's a trickier proposition. The argument that Philip Howard, who I spoke to, makes is that the Constitution mandates that states must have a Republican form of government and that the degree to which unions hold influence over governance at the state level 
basically means that they have become an unaccountable source of power and therefore these states are no longer meaningfully republics. That is something that I understand at a philosophical level, but I think that the long-standing nature of these public unions at the state level and voters perhaps frustration with them, but still acceptance of these unions would make it very, very difficult for a judge to rule that a public union is incompatible with Republican governance. But either way, I think that there's little to lose, and I hope to see that these cases brought, and I think that there's a potential that at the very least it will sort of improve the public level of concern over the influence of unions and potentially even lead to rollbacks here and there of their powers. Thank you, Manet. Thank you all for listening. You can email us at pwpodcast at wsj.com. If you like the show, please hit that subscribe button and we'll be back tomorrow with another edition of Potomac Watch. When it comes to building and financing stronger businesses, Apollo does the heavy lifting by providing customized capital solutions to drive innovation and growth. Apollo, investing in tomorrow, today. Learn more at apollo.com.